Please be seated. And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured. You don't need to dig very deep into scripture scholarship to find the widely shared opinion that the most troubling aspect of Matthew's gospel is his many harsh conclusions. Even when they sound poetic, you know, being cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth has kind of a Dickensian ring to it, don't you think? <laughs> Not so much today with this parable where what the kingdom of heaven can be compared with includes being handed over to be tortured. Maybe the torture reference is meant to heighten our interest. I wonder this because not too far below that surface, depending upon the mindset one adopts, we come upon a gateway opening up onto true helpfulness that turns out to be barely disguised at all. Let me explain. First, we will interrogate our past history. And then we can begin the imagining and telling of beautiful stories alongside. Stories meant to expand the meaning in this parable in ways that guide us along paths filled with new light paths through the acted out parables of our modern lives. I think you're going to like this. It's all about interpretation. Everything is always about interpretation. I know from my own experience how easy it is to imagine God as the king in Jesus's parables. So I researched how common or uncommon that tendency is, and I found that a lot of contemporary Christian scripture interpreters are still quite comfortable making the king out to be God. So I dipped into Amy Jill Levine's short stories by Jesus, her book about the parables, and I was glad to find this. If the Lord or the King in the parable is God, then we should wonder if this is the type of God we want to worship. What to do? I found it helpful to look again at what is actually happening here. A king wishes to settle accounts. He calls together his account managers, who Matthew calls slaves. The first one can't pay what he owes. It's an, an enormous sum. And a question arises right here. Does the king's choice to sell him and his family and all his possessions, does that choice appear to be punishment? Or could it merely be a matter of practicality, a means of settling accounts? That's not entirely clear. However, what is crystal clear is this. The king is definitely not described, not even by outer darkness weeping and gnashing of teeth Matthew, the king is not described as selling his slave and family, etc., out of anger. And that's an essential piece of information. So what happens? The slave in question becomes theatrically penitent, falling to his knees and begging for mercy. And lo, the king responds with even more generosity than the slave could have imagined, forgives him everything. That's part one. Part two is this. The forgiven slave, on his way out of the tent, or wherever they were, on his very way out, 
He runs into a colleague who owes him a mere pittance by comparison. And what does he do? The forgiven slave literally chokes this guy and demands he pay now. The poor man begs for mercy, but the forgiven slave refuses and throws him into prison. In part three, the epilogue, the bystanding account managers tell the king what's just happened and quote, in anger, his lord handed him over to be tortured. It is only then that the king becomes angry. Riddle me this, Batman. How is this like the kingdom of heaven? As you ponder, remember this. We are very close to that part of Jesus' progression that moves us from the kingdom of heaven being near, to being at hand, to being among you, until at last we come to know that the kingdom of heaven is within you. Which means this. If all parables can be said to characterize the kingdom of heaven, and if the kingdom of heaven is within you, what is this parable saying about what is going on within you? And number two, because it can be super useful to find gospel illumination hiding out in apocryphal texts, how does, say, the spiritual law of attraction as referenced in something like Jack Canfield's Chicken Soup for the Soul make this parable that much more relatable and usable. You'll recall the spiritual law of attraction is thought to be a universal principle stating that you will attract into your life whatever you focus on. And apocryphal, of course, means not necessary for salvation and yet could be very helpful in illuminating canonical texts. This parable deeply disturbing as it initially seems, may actually be far and away the most helpful one of its kind for seeking greater understanding of the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And its usefulness only increases when we remember that we are made in God's image. We are made in God's image, not in terms of optics or gender or anything exclusively creatural. We are made in God's image by virtue of the fact that we can create. And in order to create, we must have the ability to choose, to make an unfathomable array of choices. This, I believe, is what the kingdom of heaven is like to always have the ability to choose. Not necessarily the physical elements or circumstances, but there is always choice, as we will see. If this parable depicts the kingdom of heaven that is in you, then the players in the parable aren't external elements. They're not external to us. They're not acting out some kind of morality play meant to produce judgments directed at them or about them. No. These players represent the, king the kingdom of heaven being in you. They represent the fullness of your freedom to make choices. What contemporary self-help authors like Jack Canfield would refer to as creating your own reality. All of what is happening in our parable today 
characterizes the worlds in which you are welcome to choose to live. And here's what I mean. In part one of the parable, the king, while not God, does indeed represent the greatness of God's generosity, compassion, and care. Which, while that greatness actually exists in the world, it's not always recognized because it's so mysterious compared to the material world. And because it's mysterious, it is rejected more and more these days. Nonetheless, it is always there to be chosen as the spirit that informs and guides you. In part two, it's in part two that our central character makes the choice not to live in the spiritually advanced, yes, mysterious and open to interpretation and quite advanced world of radical care and forgiveness. Instead, he chooses the worldly world with its more tangible material elements. But don't forget, he is not to be judged. He's simply playing a part in your drama. That is, he represents the choice that's available to you and me and each and every one of us. And he chooses to remain invested in the thinking and behavior patterns of the worldly world, which we find out through him is a world of punishment. Wave after wave of punishment. He punishes his colleague who can't pay a pittance and the king who first forgave him because of his unforgiving is drawn out of the world of forgiveness and into the world of punishment. When he finds out what's happened, naturally it results in punishment and our guy is handed over to be tortured. This whole drama is meant to characterize what goes on in the human interior. The torture is not coming from God. Rather, it's self-inflicted. And which of us has not wittingly or unwittingly tortured ourselves? It's the torture that results when any one of us chooses the spiritual world of punishment rather than the spiritual world of forgiveness. And let's not forget that it's this spiritual world of forgiveness that Jesus is referring to in response to Peter's initial question about how many times to forgive. This parable may be one of Jesus' ways of offering the universal spiritual understanding that you will attract into your life whatever it is you focus on. It's kind of amazing, yesterday, this is just an aside. I heard um, on the media, Brooke Gladstone interviewing Naomi Klein, new book, Doppelganger. But what she was talking about was how this sense of personal discovery and the choice making not only makes an impact on me as an individual or you when you do this work, it is always automatically, directly tied to the part we play in society, in community, in the world. And that, I think, is one of the most exciting parts about it. And I'll tell you why. I'm a little anxious. Well, maybe I'm becoming a little less anxious and more excited 
to see how this stuff plays out in real time. I've been uneasy about this climate march that's happening later today. It has been unclear to me how much of my anger at all the forces that brought us to this place is part of my interior experience. How much fear of isolated malefactors intent on wreaking havoc. It's a dark world. But it's only through the work that I have been doing on this gospel that has drawn me into wondering if I can make a different choice. Can I participate with a more peaceful heart? Can I be informed and guided by the love that generates efforts like this march to end fossil fuels? And what difference will that choice make? It'll be quite an adventure. Amen. Amen.